Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I don't know shit. Just kidding, I know some stuff, really, but I hold no degrees in the topics I discuss, so be skeptical and look into things for yourself. If you find that I made a mistake about something, the best thing you could do for me is to let me know. You can do that at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Please also be aware that I don't see anything wrong with swears. They are a natural part of a person's vernacular, and they feel good to say, so I say them. And I don't bleep anything out, so listener discretion is advised. episode 75 of Living Through Extinction, a short-to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. My break lands on the 29th this year, so please be aware that the next episode will not be until January 12th. For this final episode of 2022, I want to talk about why pre-registering trials should be encouraged. A study which found that ants can be better than pesticides at keeping some crops pest-free regenerative agriculture, and e-skin technology. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. The scientific method works. We know that. It's the best way we have at this time to reach the truth about something. But there are flaws. There are always those who will try to gain the system. I want to talk about one specific flaw. Publishing negative results. For the most part, this is not done, yet could save so many researchers so much time. Time they could be using to explore other avenues that may not have been explored yet. You see, when a researcher gets an idea and tries it out, and it doesn't work, there's no obligation for them to release that study, so most just don't. Everyone wants to release their studies which work, but few want to share those which failed. There have even been studies which have shown that positive or anticipated effects are more likely to be published. But those studies which fail, they matter too. History has shown us that people with similar educations will often come up with the same ideas. There have been similar inventions created on opposite sides of the world within months of each other, with no possibility of communication between inventors. In the same way, people with similar educations in specific scientific areas may come up with similar hypotheses and similar studies to test out said hypotheses. It's not uncommon for a study which does not present the expected results to be tossed rather than reported on. But three years later, someone else may have the same idea and decide to conduct a similar study. Instead of putting months of their time into the study which has already been shown to fail, If they could have a way to know that the study has already been done, then they could save their research time and move on to something that hasn't been done. But there is no definitive way for them to know if their idea has already been tested unless someone has a successful study. Then it'd be published. The same study may have been done several times in the past, but since it didn't work, nobody published the results, and so each person who decides to take this on has no idea that they're wasting their time. That alone is a very good reason to publish failed studies. How many researchers have to go through it before it becomes known that this has been done already? Pre-registering trials is a great solution for this. In fact, 
Dr. Steve Novell at sciencebasedmedicine.org says pre-registering trials is one of the best trends in scientific medicine in the last two decades. When researchers pre-register their trials, they have to follow up with publishing the results regardless of what the results of the trials are. This makes the information available to those looking into these ideas in the future. This could make a big difference in what our researchers spend their time on and whether it turns out to be helpful. The less time spent repeating past failed studies, the more time can be spent moving forward. That's not the only benefit to pre-registering trials, though. The practice also helps keep researchers honest. One of the ways it does this is by preventing something known as harking. Hark, H-A-R-K, stands for hypothesizing after results are known. Basically, the researchers do some stuff, come up with the result, and then write the hypothesis to match those results, making it look like they set out to prove something and succeeded. Pre-registering trials would prevent hindsight bias as well, where the researcher claims to have known it all along after the study's been completed, when the study contains no notes anywhere about the supposed expected result. With a pre-registered trial, the plan for the study is laid out and the researchers are expected to stick to this plan. They are expected not to change tactics partway through in order to get results to lean one way or another. The study is to be done as registered, and the results, no matter what they are, are to be reported. It can also prevent p-hacking. Have I talked about p-hacking before? I feel like I must have. I feel like I should. P-hacking is kind of a big deal. An example of p-hacking would be researchers doing a study multiple times, but only reporting on the one or two for which they got their predicted results. That way they always get to say they were right. Meanwhile, they're ignoring most of the studies they did where it actually showed the exact opposite from what these one or two outliers showed. Another example of p-hacking would be conducting a study with multiple participants and after results start to come in, those participants who are not showing desired results get cut so that by the time it's concluded, many of those who would have not given answers the researchers were looking for are no longer a part of the study. They're not reported on. In this way, they can drastically reduce the percentage of participants for whom the expected results were not present. So that's all p-hacking. And if a trial is pre-registered, the number of studies being conducted would be a part of that pre-registration. And researchers couldn't just pretend that the ones they don't like the results of don't exist. If a trial is pre-registered, then the number of participants would be included in that. And if that number went down during the study, it would have to have an appropriate explanation. Studies which use methods such as harking and p-hacking are unethical. There are unethical people in every group, in every field, and science isn't immune from that. Pre-registered trials should have a higher standing from others, and I'm hopeful that that's the direction we're headed. But to people like you and me, this is why scientific skepticism is such important knowledge. If someone sends you a study and it fails the scientific skepticism test, it's bunk. It doesn't matter how many doctorates the researchers may have. If they conducted their trials dishonestly, then they are essentially worthless. Support pre-registering studies, and when you are informed of a study which supposedly proves something, be skeptical, damn it! Ants! There are so many interesting things about ants that I could probably talk about them for a good half hour straight. I always knew about the way they help some flowers to bloom. Couldn't name the flower or anything, but I can picture it. My mum has some. When there's ants, the stuff that makes their petals clump together is taken away, and they bloom into beautiful flowers. If there's not enough ants to do the job, then the flower petals stick together and the flower itself is not attractive at all. Just a clumpy mess, really. 
What never crossed my mind before was the possibility of using ants for pest control. I have a home in the city, and to me, the ants are the pest. But in some cases, if the right ant is matched with the right pest, then the ant can actually be better at killing those pests than pesticides. There are plenty of ant species which hunt the pests that damage fruit crops and the leaves necessary for other crops to flourish. When ants are able to be used, and not all pests can be controlled by ants, obviously, but when ants can be used and are used, less damage is done to the plants and yields are increased. The more ant diversity, the more protection a farm will receive from a larger variety of pests. Some of these ants will provide similar or higher efficacy than pesticides, and they will not cost nearly as much to maintain. They do have to be maintained, though. One can't just grab up a bunch of random ants and let them go. They can absolutely become a problem rather than a benefit if not managed properly. Not all ants are good, and not all good ants are beneficial to all crops. Some crops won't benefit at all from ants in the vicinity. But if the right crops are being grown, I don't see the downfalls in this. Check it out for yourself. A paper has been published in Proceedings of Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. The researchers who contributed to this paper consisted of a team in Brazil who were working with colleagues in Spain and the US. I touched very briefly on regenerative agriculture in the last episode about the small but growing farm to closet movement. It deserves its own segment containing much more information than previously mentioned. Regenerative agriculture is full of benefits, one of which is naturally sequestering massive amounts of CO2. So much, in fact, that they can end up with a negative output, a large negative output. The paper I read described it as, quote, a holistic land management practice that leverages the power of photosynthesis in plants to close the carbon cycle and build soil health, crop resilience, and nutrient density, unquote. We have degenerative agriculture, which brings down the health of the soil and the biodiversity within the ground. This is the majority of what humans have practiced for a very long time. There's sustainable agriculture, something we are more aware of these days. The goal here is to not make things worse, but it doesn't really make things any better either. Now we have regenerative agriculture. The goal with this method is to put out a negative when it comes to greenhouse gases, while also increasing the health of the soil and creating a nutrient-rich plot for the next crop. As with sustainable agriculture, regenerative isn't just one thing. It takes new processes in all sorts of areas to get there. A regenerative farmer is more likely to avoid just planting one or two things in order to reap the benefits of each of the different crops. More diversity in crops will attract more bees to the area, for one thing. Rotating crops in certain orders can also benefit the soil and offer insect and disease control. A quote from canolacouncil.org reads, A two or three year break between canola crops will significantly reduce viable spore counts for clubroot and blackleg. Unquote. Regenerative farmers will also make use of cover crops. These are plants which may not necessarily feed anyone or any livestock, but they do feed the microbes in the soil, helping to keep it full of nutritious goodness for the next food crop to go in. These plants are also chosen for their ability to slow soil erosion and make the best use from the water provided. Their ability to choke out weeds is another factor taken into consideration. A regenerative farmer is going to use minimum till or no-till practices. Tilling is one of the most degrading practices in farming. It increases both soil erosion and carbon loss by huge amounts. I'm pretty sure Jason and I talked about over-tilling a bit on the topsoil erosion episode, which was number seven. It's actually become a less common practice on the prairies these days, which is good news. 
Composting is also an important part of regenerative farming. Organic waste adds nutrients, which attract earthworms, which attract other organisms, helping to build up the ecosystem both below and above ground. Mixing compost in with the soil also helps with water retention, which will reduce watering requirements as there will be less runoff. And of course, the best use of livestock manure is important too. This has components such as nitrogen and phosphorus, which are not just good for the soil, but required for healthy plant growth. Putting phosphorus back into the ground is kind of a big deal. I talked about the world's phosphorus shortage on episode 35, if you'd like to know more about that. On the negative side of regenerative farming, it starts as an investment. While lucrative once established, it can take up to 10 years for the changes to take place, depending on how degraded the land being renewed is. On the positive side though, there is so much more. By using all of the methods I just went over, and by focusing on a balance of livestock and cropland, by working with nature rather than against it, CO2 is captured in massive amounts, sequestering it in the ground, which is great for net emissions. The structure of the soil is strengthened to, quote, reverse civilization threatening human-caused soil loss, unquote. I took that from the paper I read. The health of the soil is improved as the farmer rebuilds the organic matter of the land and the degraded biodiversity is restored. This eventually affects the biodiversity both above and below ground. Water usage is lessened as the revitalized soil will be able to hold on to more moisture until it can be used. And the crops are more resilient to extreme climate events, which is something which needs to be kept in mind as we go forward. General Mills has started a project to help them offset some of their carbon footprint. They offer coaching on regenerative agriculture as well as soil testing to farms across North America, including 45 oat farms in Saskatchewan. Most of GM's carbon output comes from the agriculture side of the business, so that's where they decided to put their focus. And in the end, it's something that could be good for the entire country, as more and more get to the point of massive carbon sequestering and more and more reach negative outputs, Canada's carbon numbers will be greatly improved. That's why Regeneration Canada has made a map available to anyone interested in supporting these endeavors. Here, farms following these practices can register to be not just on the map, but once registered they can make further use of the site to attach things to their mark on the map. They can show their farms and tell their stories, helping them to get their names out. Farmers are increasing awareness of what they do and how it matters, and they are using the site to seek each other out and share information. There's more of a community mindset here than one of competition. Regeneration Canada says allowing these farms to promote themselves on the website in this way contributes to communicating soil regeneration to people across the country. And for those who want to know exactly where the food is coming from, the map can be used to search out farms that match with what's important to you. You can see each farm's certification practices, products, locations, and more. According to Regeneration Canada, this is one of those steps that could really help to, quote, mitigate climate change, increase food security, return biodiversity, improve water cycles, and generally promote the health of Canadians and the ecosystems they rely on." Unquote. Sounds like a worthy endeavor to me. On episode 72, I talked about blood pressure tattoos. E-skin technology is really starting to take off. There's already all sorts of scholarly articles out there, but I'm not going to bore you with any of those. Material sciences are truly amazing. We owe a ridiculous amount to material science researchers. Another thing I should probably do a whole segment on, though it does come up again and again. On episode 42 with biodegradable textiles, 71 with turbine blades that can be recycled into useful, even edible products. 
or episode 63 segment on wood-based foam. I don't know if the average person appreciates the material sciences as much as we should. We're so used to the things around us being a part of our lives that we don't stop to wonder how or why or what life would be like without. The researchers in this field are responsible for how warm your clothes are, how comfortable your bed is, how cleanable and waterproof your medical-grade silicone sex toys are. We owe a lot to material science. Eastkin Tech is entering a lot more than the blood pressure business. The ultimate goal is to come up with something which is flexible, stretchable, and can mimic human or animal skin. Material scientist John Rogers is one of the most prolific researchers of wearable skin-inspired electronics. He leads a team at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, whose focus is skin-inspired circuitry, which is soft, flexible, stretchy, and comfortable with the ability to respond to touch and stay in place regardless of movement or wrinkles. One of the wireless Bluetooth devices they came up with sits at the hollow of a person's throat. This particular piece can provide continuous real-time monitoring of talking, breathing, heart rate, and other things. It's shown to be a fantastic device for people recovering from a stroke and requiring speech therapy. Another device which spots symptoms of COVID is being used in Chicago to help spot early signs in frontline health workers as well as patients staying at the hospital. The design has been tweaked since use began. It's now also assessing how coughing rates change in people who've contracted COVID-19. There's so much data that could be gathered. Coming up with these devices is no small feat. The chemical and engineering challenges to be overcome would be huge. Flexible components which are not brittle are not the norm when it comes to electronics. It may be one day, but for now we still have a lot to learn. The team did what a lot of researchers do, started with something that already exists and built upon it. The work takes from the work done to develop components for ebook readers and curved TVs. The material scientists who helped to develop those were working on flexible carbon-based molecules or polymers that conduct electricity. And now the devices coming from this research team are being tested worldwide in a variety of ways. They're monitoring the vital signs of premature infants without having to touch them. They're monitoring for signs of hydration in athletes. They're even being used to give robots a lighter, more human-like touch. But it's the medical side that gets me most excited. The next generation is going to have the most amazing diagnostic access. That's all I've got for y'all this year. The next episode will be out in four weeks on January 12th, 2023. Between now and then, whatever you celebrate, or even if you don't celebrate anything at all, I hope your life is peaceful and joyful. Be well, be safe, be calm. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity continue to be replenished daily. A special happy holidays and thank you to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this three years ago. I never would have got the guts to go it on my own if he hadn't started out with me. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at WPG Suitcase Drummer on Instagram. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Instagram at Prairie Soul Music. And finally, thank you to my family, particularly my kids, who made me who I am today. I'd be nothing and nowhere if it weren't for them. I might have never got into learning skepticism if it weren't for them. I might not be as passionate about everything I'm passionate about today if it weren't for them. They rock. I hope you will choose to join me again in four weeks for episode 76 of Living Through Extinction. And a happy, peaceful rest of December to everyone. (laughs) 